welcome to the old school a podcast. Thank you, about the, Well, no, oh, I, I dropped I, in early. You I was excited early. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, um, keep out. Uh, keep going. I'll, I'll, I'll defer. I know you interrupted my flow. Now I don't know what to do. I, you said your name was Ross Miller. Well, yes, it happens to be. <laughs> what are you <laughs> reading? You, you are Doctor Stephen Bourgeois. I have, yes. to find, I have to find the line on the paper. Uh, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is the old school, a podcast, normally a little bit more lively on my end, yes, uh, about the American education system, its quirks, its qualities, its traits, its various infirmed employees. And with that, we shall say uh, good morning here, Dr. Bourgeois. Hello, Herr Miller. <laughs> how, how the heck are you on this fine morning? I'm not the heck fine. I can tell you that. <laughs> you, you mentioned you weren't feeling well a few minutes ago, and that's why I was so excited to jump into the podcast, because this is always fun. I think if it comes to the fact that you are the energy of this show, we are indeed <laughs> <laughs> we are indeed in some trouble. You're uh, saying I'm, I'm some depressive character, sardonic? No, no, no. no, no. You, have a, you have a low energy charisma about you, so... Uh. I've been told that. <laughs> you know, he's really soft-spoken, but my God, he brings it home, though, doesn't he? So, Yeah, I've been told I'm a sandbagger. <laughs> <laughs> You're the guy that walks into a pool hall and say, no, I've never played before. So, <laughs> I actually did that about a month ago, not at a pool hall, but a casual affair. <clears throat> what the hell is this thing you hold? So how do you hold this? <laughs> Do I put the white ball in the pocket? Yes, that's what you do. So <clears throat> I would like to get you into a pool hall. I think it'd be I interesting to see. Well, you know, um, I've spent you, you many a time. You, yeah, you have. You, you spent like every one day a week for about all of your career before you met me. Right. Uh, you've tried to get me in pool halls on the golf course. We went on the tennis court um, briefly. Uh, but not not the pool. And I think the pool is probably, of all of those, your best sport. <clears throat> well, it used to be. I don't know if it is anymore. But That's, uh, as a hustler would say. <laughs> I, know, I know your game here. All right. Very good. Now you're saying that I'm sandbagging. Um, yeah, you would, you would if there's money involved, I'm sure. <laughs> I told you, I, I, of all, this, all the years I've played pool, I don't think I've ever... Well, no, I take that back. I played. I played for money once, <clears throat> and it convinced me to never do it again. So, well, the, mo the money threw you off your game. Well, you start thinking about it. You can't help it, you know. And I choked. There's no well, two ways around it. I choked. You need to just play, play. And I'm quoting the color of money about every line here, and you don't remember it. <laughs> You're getting old here, Miller. <laughs> <laughs> I like that movie, although yeah. I like the uh, precursor better. So, oh, okay. Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason. Yeah. The Hustler. Um, the Color I'm of sure Money was like the called. glitzy 80s, sexy version of The Hustler. The original Hustler is a little bit more gritty, a little bit more dangerous, a little bit more darker. Those, those people in that Color of Money, they're too... They're too beautiful. Uh, it, it can't be gritty. It can't be edgy. So, well, it it, it has some wisdom though with the <clears throat> older man and the young buck. I think that um, 
that's what it's about. But if you, if you don't like to look at beautiful people in films, <laughs> I'll stick with the John Wayne film. So, <laughs> but I think, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, all the times I've played pool, I mean, there are certainly valuable lessons to be gained from it. You know, I think we've talked about this before, I'm sure on multiple occasions, but you know, I think sometimes people get the idea that learning happens best inside the four walls of a classroom. And I think in actuality, the classroom can be rather uninteresting compared to what you find out interacting with people, traveling, that sort of thing. You know, and so I think there's a certain wisdom that comes with billiards. And um, I don't know. I think of it with fond memories. Okay. Well, well there we'll you go. Do it sometime. I'm, I'm not not opposed. I, I, I know you have some seedy locations. <laughs> run with a rough crowd, but uh, you're there to protect me. You know, so to have a marine with you and feel better. <laughs> no, I can't fight, but he can. <laughs> was that great scene from the old school with Rodney Dangerfield? He goes, "You're a fighter." So, oh no, I'm a, I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. He's a fighter. <laughs> and then like, the actor that played. Um, Adrian's brother in the Rocky films shows up and starts crushing, you know, napkin holders, <laughs> what have you. And then the young bucks you're like, getting, hey, you're, huh? You're getting off track about napkin holders. Yeah. Talking it, about it, the it, great it, Bert, what Bert Young, right? Bert Young. That's it. There you go. Okay. I almost said Bert Ward. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the same guy. <laughs> so anyway, a lot of wisdom to be gained from, both movies and pool, so. Yeah, and from uh, Burt Ward. Uh, at one point, he started speaking Spanish. Did you, did you know that? Um, in the Batman reason, series? Yeah, Batman said something, and Robin said, CC Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of the blue, it was hilarious. <laughs> Is that your only Spanish you got? Um, I have a lot more. I'm just not ready to share it right now. Dos cervezas, por favor. Oh, yeah. Dos, tres, cuatro. <laughs> I can't know all the numbers up to ten. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's it. That's where I'm out. <laughs> he can't drink more than ten. He doesn't know how to say it. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Enough of this silliness. Um, really? Really? Yeah. Knock it off. <laughs> yes. So I think the topic today is something that, as luck would have it, you're very good about talking about. And given my rather infirm condition, I can just jump in with witticisms from time to time. But uh, <laughs> play my role, <laughs> Murphy comments at an opportune moment. I'll be the straight man this time. So, but uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, <clears throat> we, we we have discussed before about the the beating that the humanities have taken at the hands of the club-fisted hands of STEM education. And I think in line with uh, humanities is also the arts, uh, particularly music and art. And I want to know, for you, it may have been an easy transition to go from, because you are a musician, you're a trained musician, highly qualified trained musician. And so it was probably not very surprising that you found yourself inside of a classroom trying to teach kids how to play instruments. But uh, what it was music education like when you began your career and what did it look like in contrast at the end of your career? 
Wow. So you give me something high and outside. Just kind of sitting <laughs> up there. Um, um, what, back in my day when I went to high school, particularly, we had a lot of freedom. And so that that's kind of the, the context, meaning we didn't have all these core classes. I mean, we had a few, but, you know, about 60% of my day was music. You know, I had a a period where I was practicing, uh, a period with a quartet, uh, with a piano, um, violin, viola, and cello. Um, I was in string orchestra. I played violin and viola, um, and I accompanied uh, the choir, um, eventually the jazz choir. And so that's a lot of uh, music in a, in a day. And so that um, so schools were really open to that. If you had an interest, you could pursue it. And um, almost um, as a professional school in, in a typical high school. Um, so things de definitely shifted uh, with the transition to testing. Um, but what was your question again? Well, just talking about, you know, as STEM education has grown in, um, in, in pr prominence and in emphasis, you know, the, the fact that school districts seem to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to shape and mold and advance their STEM education, trying to, you know, you know trying to make that case that they are indeed uh, set to uh, usher kids into the next century, into the future jobs that lie ahead of them through STEM education. And I can't imagine that music and art has not, as history has, has not changed uh, over the course of that time, and perhaps not for the better. Well, um, in in a lot of school districts, there, there's a tendency now towards you know professional type courses, at least having a coherent schedule where you have. I mean, they do it in in Texas where you have a. Uh, it's not called a major, but it's a specialty that you probably know the technical term for that—a pathway. Yes. Um, and, and so if, if you're in a, a, a high school today uh, as a student, you, you do have a vibrant choice of electives in, in music, and you have some really incredible programs. If you want to be a band student, uh, they take them pretty far. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's quite impressive how far you go to practice. They have private teachers uh, that they make it affordable, so almost everybody has a private teacher. Uh, that applies to all of the performing arts and and. So I think that it's there if, if you want it. And that's that's if you attend a traditional large high school where they have um, the funding for, for that that type of thing. Um, so I, I would say that in some ways, you know, the arts are very healthy. Where they uh, fall apart is the lower grades, um, where, where there, there's a time where it's kind of given lip service, but, a, but, but really not intensive training like, like you potentially could get in high school. I could be wrong. And um, it's been yes. known to happen, <laughs> but uh, it seems that two things have happened with regards to music education. One is that you're not really allowed as a student, you're not really allowed to dabble anymore. You're not allowed to explore. You either have to go all in all the time. And this is where you uh, have the pathways that you were talking about earlier, but you either have that or you just, I mean, you're just locked in on these pathways where you just don't have the luxury of taking anything in excess uh, to what your primary objective is. And, 
you know, no one is allowed to just, you know, and I, I come across this a lot, you know, whether it's about, you know, students who have a musical interest, but they also have other interests as well. You know, you, you can't really, a student can't really create for themselves, at least not very easily, a kind of a diversified um, mentality, a diversified range of interests, uh, because there's so much emphasis on specialization. And I think, I think that that's where, at least at the high school level, as far as I see, and again, I'm outside mm-hmm. of the, the department. And so perhaps my perceptions are incorrect, but it seems that uh, it's a common kind of all or nothing sort of thing. You're either in or you're not in. And so the notion of dabbling, the notion of experimentation, the high school structure, at least here in our area, doesn't lend itself to it. And I know that there are plenty of examples around the country that create their high schools in much the same way. Um, I, I would agree. I, it, it would be difficult for a student to study band and, and be all in uh, and also say study drama. And, you know, a lot of schools have great programs in both areas or choir. Um, it, it, it's, it's set up because of the rehearsal structure and there's a lot of after school commitments and particularly in well they all have have this you know if you know in theater if there are productions which take a lot of time outside of class in band programs you know everybody in the fall everybody uh, is in the marching band in some capacity and it's a huge time commitment lots of travel um so it's it's really not practical to have have two areas a few students do it but mm-hmm. most will, will pick and then the other thing that's looming behind all this is athletics right that, well you can't be a you know competitive high level athlete and then uh, also be top a top performer in 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 the arts um you know it's rare I and mean, i'm not saying it can't happen but usually you have to make this choice and it becomes apparent in about uh, ninth grade when you tr- you know when you try to do both uh, you realize the scheduling it's 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 prohibitive you you can't really you know go to tennis matches and also do marching band it's you have to choose and, and that's that is unfortunate i agree with you well then then the next thing that you know you know you get these kids that come across with this self you know self-possessed kind of uh, persona but in actuality, there's there's many things that they they're interested in that they can't pursue. They're kind of blocked. And so there was a British conservative philosopher named Roger Scruton who uh, had a I don't know if it was a podcast or it was like a show or something like that. Uh, but he had a very uh, fascinating young lady on his show, and she said something that has stuck with me um, for quite a while. Ever since she said it, I just remember just being blown away. Uh, by the sentiment where she said, when you focus on identity, you limit identity. And for our kids, they're being funneled into this system that creates an identity, but one that cannot have any, you know, diversion, no, no variety within it. You know, you're a math person and we know you're a math person because you're loaded to the gill with math classes, you know, you're a band person and that's because you spend a gazillion hours a week at practice. And so I wonder to what degree the lack of opening up music education to a much more general um, clientele 
if this is not having some detrimental effects, perhaps heretofore not spoken of or not realized. I, I, I like the argument. I'm not sure um, how it applies to, to high school students because they're, I mean, they are specializing, but they're also getting a, a social group. Um, and being part of that, I mean, it, students are so different from each other, but but they have kind of this common experience. And, and imagine schools where that is lacking. You know, there's very, very little connection between students and they're just kind of talking heads in the classroom and then they're shuffled around the hallway then they're a talking head in another right. class. But they have, they have something in common uh, and they're working towards a common goal, um, which but is e- very important. But even that circle, that social circle, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not to say that there are not students who break this, um, who break this pattern, but I mean, even the social circles of some of our most driven students, that circle is mostly within with students who share most of their classes. And so if you are like some sort of math savant or, you know, you're some sort of science guru and this is your pathway, then the people you're surrounded by the most are also science oriented. And so even the social circle can be limiting because your coursework is limited because your experiences are limited and it creates an overall kind of stunting of the individual. Now, again, there are plenty of people who break out of this, uh, but there are many who don't, uh, who don't see a reason for it. And so it's this kind of tunnel mindset that says, this is my focus. This is what I'm going to do. Um, my success in these classes are, are key to getting into the right school, what have you. It really kind of limits the individual. And you know, not to be over dramatic about this, but you can't help but think about the uh, <laughs> Pink Floyd's The Wall. You know, the notion of you know the, the film where the guy kids are just being cranked through a sausage grinder and everything looks the same. And um, uh, I just can't help thinking about that sometimes when I talk to my students. Well, um, you know, I'm I'm seeing kind of the opposite um, of that because you know when when a when a kid is in, in high school, particularly, they, they need to have their people. They need their mm. social group um, because the the other side of what you're saying is to be isolated, and, right. and that's you know a, I think a, a bigger problem. The two, I mean, you've you've taught forever. I mean, they've built several schools around you <laughs> personally, and um, you you would probably agree that your best students ever have been band students uh, and um you know and to some extent athletes um but but people who have something else who are highly scheduled and busy um it, it makes for a, a healthy high school experience and you don't get distracted distracted with nonsense and so i think overall i mean it's a it's a calculus but uh, I, I don't know what you're proposing you know but i uh, it sounds like you'd like of students to be able to you use the word dabble so take a, a a music class take a theater class and so forth which which they can but but the truth is those types of um, courses where you're getting a just a general understanding applied music or something like that music appreciation you tend to get people who are just doing it because it's an elective and they need the credit so they're I mean, you know, it's it's not 
um, this um, turnaround, beautiful moment where you're converting people to, oh, now I love classical music. You're, mm-hmm. you're managing. I tried that <laughs> at, at, a, at a school where it, it needs to have some performance element to it you right. know, to get them working for something. But other, otherwise, it, it, it just becomes a uncomfortable experience, uh, particularly for the teacher, but also for the other students. So in that case, and I'm very much aware that your three children, accomplished musicians, the lot of them, uh, are very, they have very diverse interests. And I think that that is as much to do with how they were raised as they are how they're influenced by social forces. I think, you know, yes, I think you're correct. We talked about this before, again, uh, that the musician, the athlete tends to be the most, tends to be the best student. But as we have talked about also before, that the best student is not necessarily the best student. And the question comes in as to why they're learning. Why do they think they're learning? What are they, what is their long range kind of goals with the knowledge that they're, they're taking in. And if it doesn't fall within their particular discipline, they may have an interest, but the interest only goes so far as the class. You know, I can, I can be interesting at times and I can be um, compelling at times, but ultimately it's up to the student to help find their own interest in something. And so while yes, in general, I can say that musicians and athletes do make the best students. Um, you also have to be careful what kind of student you're creating, you know, and, you know, like I said, you've done an amazing job uh, with yours. Um, I, but I also find myself sometimes perplexed by conversations or the lack of conversations that I can have with some of these more driven students. And I just worry about the notion of being able to, you know, just explore other interests while at the same time, maybe following your best instincts on something. You know, we talked about before the notion of um, uh, what's the dangers of specialization and what is the potential pitfalls of that. And I think that that's primarily what I'm talking about. And I just worry that musician, that music education has become an all or nothing proposition. And I, I don't know how many classes we really have that simply allows for a kind of a casual, certainly low stakes kind of approach to either music in general or an instrument in particular. There are some, I guess, lessons in music that aren't really about music. And I I go back and forth on the competitive nature, particularly of um, music programs and everything about performance and getting judged and competing and um, I mean that that goes with you know my motivational theories that I espouse that the that, that what you see are, are students who are uh, working for a common goal, but it's about the 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 winning and the competition, you know, probably more than about the the music making itself. Not always, mm-hmm. um, but but to to that point, a lot. You know, I would say most uh, people. Who are you know students who are in a band program? Once they walk across the stage, will will never pick up that instrument again. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the, and is that a bad thing? Uh, maybe. I mean, it's a shame because they put in you know hundreds and hundreds of hours to develop the level of competence. Um, but the competitive part is 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 a little bit troubling because you know I I I would like to you know create create musicians people who are lifetime musicians and I think the competitive part of it uh, plays against that um, at the time at the same time there there's a, a this implicit lesson that that athletes learn that you know musicians learn that those who who get good at something. Um, that the the process there's a lot of behind the scenes that nobody sees you know on that stage when you perform the mother, the parents come and sit in the auditorium uh, other students watch and they just hear a performance but there, there's so much uh, practice and rehearsal and private lessons and struggle uh, behind that and I think that's really the the benefit the primary benefit of, of doing anything that's performance based hmm. is that you learn this lesson of practice and hard work and if you and pretty much you can do anything um if you apply that methodology um later on i think both with music and with athletics mm-hmm. i think that that's perhaps one of the uh, most significant lessons that is learned um, well there's another there's another i mean just follow on that and um i mean you, you can imagine athletes athletics you know it, it's it's a meritocracy like uh, music is right you know in, in athletics i mean it doesn't matter anything but can you perform so the team that's the starting five in the basketball team they're the ones who are going to give you the best chance of winning and so it's there's no doubt about it you know the coach is going to put in the people that will help them win but in in music it, it is the same thing you know because a lot of high schools have two three four bands and it's competitive but it's not based on who you know you know and often they even do blind auditions where the judges don't see them and they just give a rating so there's something uh, about that that is really appealing um, because it is a meritocracy and often in in a classroom and we've talked this to death but um, it's not about how much you learn but it's about how how you know how to be a student and fill in the blanks and so forth. But in, in music, it is based upon what you can produce, you know, through your horn, for example. So if music education is healthier, at least in the high schools, than I (laughs) feared it was or wasn't, um, in what ways do you think it could be better? I mean, how do you improve it? And you talked about the, the kind of the, the dangerous elements of competition towards something that I mean, I guess it's always been competition to a certain degree, but I mean, how would you alter or change music education? What's happening at the lower grades that you've seen that explains why music education is not being as successful there as it was in the past? Um, I think uh, all elective programs are being cannibalized, you know, in the elementary level particularly because they have you know so much time that they're willing to some districts call them specials meaning it's <laughs> it's not even a class it's something something else and you have a music teacher who's jumping around from grade level to grade level and and you know doing probably some really good work but it's not a cohesive 
program because it, there's very little contact time with e each student. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of these music teachers are asked to go from school to school within a district and, and do their song and dance, as it were. And that, you know, but but they're not building musicians. Um, because of why? Why is that? Because of the, the state testing and schools decide, well, we need to put more time into math and we're going to revamp the schedule. So that schedule is is what prevents music from being taught in the elementary level. They, they just a lot, um, it's getting a smaller and smaller. The walls are kind of closing in on the, the time that they're willing to devote to not just music, but art and anything else that's not uh, on that state test. Well, and then I wanted to give some time then to uh, ask you something that we talked about before and you enjoyed doing. Besides your father, whose influence on you looms large and one of the reasons why you're such a great musician, I wonder if there are any other music teachers that you met either as a student or as a teacher that you feel was doing things in the way that it could best be done. It was a kind of a model for you, as it were. Um, you get a lot of different teachers going through grade levels, you know, in, in music, just like in any, any course, but they all seem to, for me at least, have different approaches. Um, um, some were, were you know, very open and they would, you know, be effusive in their praise, you know, which for some, and for me at that age, it, it really helped. So I wanted to work for them. And I wanted to put in time and practice and surprise them with you know what I, what I could do. I was giving a lot, given a lot of chances to perform, um, and uh, so the effort was definitely rewarded. Um, some of them were were challenging. I mean, I was a accompanist, and and being a choir accompanist, a pianist for a choir, is really difficult because you need to follow that director. You need to anticipate what they're doing in the rehearsal. And a lot of people don't know this, but as they're rehearsing, they, they, they talk, they give a little feedback and then they say, now let's, let's run measure, measure eight right now. Boom. And the, if the pianist is kind of fumbling around in their music, you know, they're, they're inefficient and they've, they've lost the moment. And, and, and so I, I remember being called out for that in, early on in my, accompanying say you know this you, you weren't ready you didn't know your music and um and and you need to be on top of it you need to anticipate what i'm doing be in my head basically so you're right there and that was hard you know and i and i that's when my father was a the orchestra teacher there so you know i knew him he knew me but he was straight with me and said you know you need to be really prepared and 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 so you learn how to take tough feedback you know when, when necessary but it also make, makes you better so i think i had a, a spectrum of of teachers and then of course at the university level it's a uh, this, the same idea you have people who do different things for you um, but ultimately at all you, you kind of have one teacher of this combined individual it's interesting you think about some of the uh, most famous band leaders um some of them are known for having quite um, kind of mercurial personalities. The one that kind of immediately jumps to mind is Buddy Rich, 
and someone who would spend all this time yelling and screaming at his uh, at his orchestra, <laughs> basically saying, you know, what, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, this is not how you're supposed to do it. Get your act together or get out. You know, and so you'd have these kind of and there's there's tapes you can hear you can hear online. You can hear some of his yelling sessions. He was quite known for it. Um, it kind of reminds me of the reputation that sometimes you hear about with chefs. You know, the chefs tend to be rather brutal uh, with their underlings. Um, but the image I get from hearing you talk about, you know, the litany of folks that you have interacted with over your career is that it's really is a hodgepodge. You know, you have people with different styles, different strengths, and they bring that to how they conduct the orchestra or how they conduct the band. It's very different. And I never, you know, as a performer, I never liked it when the band leader was a drummer. (laughs) (laughs) They do tend to be a little rough and it's all about tempo and meaning you can't play with the tempo and slow down a little bit. So it's, it's, to me, it was less musical, particularly, you know, accompanying a a singer with a drummer kind of wanting to, press forward you know and, and then and the the singer like me you know she wanted to and so I, you know the, you, there's a, a, a tension with any any leader but uh, ultimately they're just trying to get the best out of everybody in their own way you know and the truth is particularly working well working with adults or students um you're not always the nicest person when you're trying to do that because it's a tough job to get everybody to do it and so often fear is a, a good motivator for people in an orchestra. And and the thing that makes that necessary is time. You have only have so much time for rehearsal so they don't they don't suffer fools and typically they're 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 pretty short with people. You're talking about the the tension that exists between the drummer and the <laughs> quote unquote singer. <laughs> I was thinking about that movie um um, um shoot with Tom Hanks and uh, about the the wonders the um uh, the wonders oh yeah uh, that thing you do that thing you do so there at the beginning of the at the beginning of that film they had written a song and the lead singer had meant it to be a ballad and a kind of a soulful you know emotional type of thing and then i guess the drummer had other ideas <laughs> and he begins to ramp up the tempo and the singer tried his best in the middle of a performance to keep his tempo. And then ultimately he was just overshadowed by the drums and the, and the screaming uh, kids and what have you. But, uh, was that, so a get, hit? Was that their one hit wonder the, yeah. the fast tempo? Yeah. Well, you're just saying that because you're a former drummer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying sometimes drummers have a better sense of the right tempo to strike, you know? So well, I, I think they're over officious. <laughs> <laughs> they need to be put in the background where they belong. Uh, <laughs> one last one. Well, yeah, uh, maybe we belong back there. Uh, we are the heartbeat of what's happening on that stage, my friend. Don't ever forget yes. it. No matter how cool you think you are behind the, the, the tickling the ivories, you're living out your Billy Joel or Elton John dreams or Oscar Peterson or, you know, Keith Jarrett. Uh, it's the drummer uh, that, uh, well, you know, it's the drummer. He's the sexy one. He's the one that has the most intrigue. He's half hidden. So there's a bit of mystery about him. And, uh, you know, the guy, the guy in front with the piano or the lead singer, everyone can see him. I mean, he's not as interesting because we already know him, you know, but it's the guy oh behind gosh. the scene. 
you're really bringing out this point. And, uh, <laughs> it's about the drummer. He's the sexy one. Okay. <laughs> How do you follow that? <laughs> you can't. You just say, yes, you're correct. Okay. <laughs> yes, you are correct. <laughs> How important do you, it's kind of a last question here, but uh, to kind of, to kind of wrap up what, uh, what music education can be or can look like, um, how much, how important is it for students to know more than one instrument or more than one type of instrument? I'm not talking about, you know, someone being able to play two or three different types of woodwinds, but to be able to actually cross the divide into other realms of the orchestra or band. How important is that, do you think, intellectually, uh, as far as learning goes? Um, Heather Miller, have you ever played a double reed instrument, like an oboe or a bassoon? I played a bassoon once. Okay. How did it sound? It sounded awful, because I didn't know what I was doing. So. <laughs> okay. So, so that, that, that's what I was expecting. Not that you maybe you weren't a brilliant player, but it's, it's really difficult to get a sound out of any instrument. Uh, that that is not a grating noise, you know, hmm. because um, the mouthpieces are different. It's a different instrument, you know. Playing a clarinet is, is a different embouchure, different everything. Playing a brass instrument, hmm. and even just picking up a trumpet, hmm. uh, it takes a long time to get something that sounds um, just okay. And the same is true for stringed instruments. You know, playing a violin, you you sound like a, a cat screaming for about two years. <laughs> in the, and it's not just well that your bow's bouncing up and down; you can't control it. And, you, and it, these instruments are all difficult. Um, you know, playing the, the piano, you can make some progress early on, but then you hit a wall when you have to use two hands at the same time, and most people can't do that. Uh, so I think that's that's why that doesn't happen too much. Some some can, and and it's really, but they have to start over uh, in a sense. So I think that's why you don't see too too much. Switching around, I can tell you that when I was a substitute teacher back in Oregon, I would take uh, jobs, um, and often they were music jobs. Um, so I would be a band teacher for a day at a high school, and <clears throat> the students would switch instruments. <laughs> so <laughs> I just can you know, they, the director gives me notes, do these uh, songs. So I mean, I was a musicians so they knew that i could actually run a rehearsal right but suddenly it sounds awful and what's happening the kids are kind of snickering <laughs> so, okay we need to stop this and trade instruments back and then everybody stands up and goes around <laughs> that's my you know my memory of substitute teaching in, in band it was not fun <laughs> So you're saying that this ability is more uh, found in the likes of practical jokes and chicanery than it is an actual talent. You know, someone, someone like Prince, who supposedly could have played 27 different instruments. Yeah. I mean, if you do that, you have to put in the time. Right. <laughs> you know, they're all they're all difficult in, in their own way, uh, for sure. Hmm. Well, I don't know if we solved anything. I think, um, uh, well, I think we may have solved something in that maybe my perceptions were not totally accurate as far as how it was seen in music education. So I guess in one way, I think it's nice to know that it may not be in as dire straits as I feared it was. But wow. the other... Well, but at the other end, I, I, I want that that quote. We should make that our introduction. <laughs> My perceptions changed, Steve. Thank you. Yeah, I love it. Um, 
But I think we can also say that there, there's still some lingering issues at the lower levels, uh, elementary and middle school levels. Part of it could be funding. Part of it could be structuring as far as how they structure the curriculum, you know, to shuffle a kid off to music once a week kind of a thing. Uh, well, maybe well, there's one, one more thing on that. Just to not be unfair to middle school programs. Uh, you know, those are really, they are excellent and they know how to introduce uh, an instrument uh, to, to students. And they, and so really starting in fifth grade, you know, they, they have a, quite a system. It's really impressive. Um, so that's where the musical education starts to write itself a little bit. Absolutely. Okay. And, and they, then they take them really, really far. You know, if the student has a private teacher, and most do uh, in, in these better programs. Um, but yeah, the so the elementary, you know, leaves something to be desired, at least from my perspective. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the, the teachers. It has to do with the uh, limited time they have. Right. So... Well, um, a new element, I think, for the most part, on the uh, old school podcast, uh, looking at musical education. I am not a musician, uh, but I love uh, the art of music, and I can certainly appreciate it. So, like I said, I'm kind of glad to know that perhaps um, <clears throat> our worst fears have not been realized, as it were, to to uh, to quote the great Jim McKay, but. Uh, <laughs> so anyway well uh you know baseball's coming up um haven't they like been playing for a month and a half already yeah but that was something different so what do you mean oh, they're, uh, they're playing they show highlights <laughs> like the top 10 and and they're showing people diving or running into walls catching balls so i, I thought it already started but well, it hasn't a way but now the real season is about to begin and once again you'll find that people they step a little lighter, you know, a smile comes a little easier. You know, it's one of those things that uh, it's the psychology of baseball that can improve a society as much as music can from time to time. So I, I, I would argue that um, baseball season starts as soon as the NBA playoffs are over and, and they don't they, they're over later and later. You know, almost in July at this point, but that's about when I don't even think you believe that anymore. You don't even like basketball anymore. No, I'm, I just yelled, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, no. <laughs> I, I can't imagine watching a baseball game before the NBA playoffs have played themselves out. Um, and I, I bet if you look at some, you know, television viewing, I think there's a spike at that point because what's left? I would suggest that's just a lack of imagination. I think you need to you need to work on that. <laughs> so. I've been on a roll today, Herr Miller. I interrupted you during your intro. I'm bashing baseball. I'm feeling my oats. <laughs> I didn't play the straight man enough. There were some really silly things you said this past uh, podcast. I should have jumped on that. So I was trying to I took advantage of your, of your condition. <laughs> I am in a weakened state, and I think it's. Uh, well, frankly, you're better. Than, well, you may not be better than that, but uh, I thought I thought maybe you would be better than that. So, all right, what the hell? Let's go ahead and wrap it up. And uh, we should. And so, with that, uh, we shall bid adieu. Uh, and I wish you a great weekend, here, Doctor Bourgeois. I do enjoy as well, here, Miller. <laughs>